God's people said. What a blessing, what a thrill to be able to unite our voices and to praise the Savior, to ponder his work, his finished work, his sufficient work, amen, on the cross. These are not trivial statements. When we say it was his finished work, when we think of, you know, all those various phrases, that it, that's a wonderful study of when Jesus was there on the cross that day, the different things he said. I think sometimes in our humanity, we, we look at that statement, it is finished, and we think, oh boy, what a day that was for him. I'm sure he was glad that it was over. That's not really what he was saying. <laughs> sure, in his humanity, yeah, that, that part of the physical suffering had come to a close, but it was so much more. Because for millennia, the lambs had been slain, and the blood had been shed and sprinkled on the altar to cover the sin. But in that moment, the Lamb, capital L, had been slain. And his blood washed away the sin. And so when he said it is finished, the work, the redeeming work, was done. And it is sufficient. It's all that was needed. And so as this morning as we come now to this opportunity, as we've just been reminded in song, appreciate so much the ministry of Chris Anderson and that text and Greg Habecker putting it to music. But that challenge to go and to, to proclaim to not be ashamed of the gospel. To take to the world. The wonderful news for the sake of his name. As we were singing that song together, the thought came to my mind, do we realize, do, do we corporately, do, do you individually, do I, do we realize? We sit here this morning, if you are a child of God, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You sit here this morning, you sing these truths, they stir your heart. Because somebody, somebody was not ashamed to tell you the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a, a sibling or a co-worker. But somebody spoke to your heart the good news of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit took that. And your heart, your spiritual eyes were awakened. How tragic it would be for us then to just take that and hoard it and just hold on to it to ourselves. When we have an experience in our life that is so, so wonderful, so awe-inspiring, so, so magnificent. We want to tell people about it. 
you make the drive a few hours to the north and, and west of here and you go see Niagara Falls and you come back and you talk about it for days. Because what else would you do? I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, just things like that. And yet, we have and we have been entrusted, we, we possess the greatest story, the greatest news ever told. That is the good news. And I trust that we, like Paul, are being challenged, convicted, exhorted, even inspired to go to the world for the sake of his name. Perfect song to usher us into this next passage that is before us in our study. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn in. To Romans chapter 9, just those last few verses, we'll read them, I'll read them aloud for you, you can follow along just down to the very first verse of chapter 1. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, Paul is continuing this and he, he starts with a question, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul writes here of the greatest desire, the most earnest prayer that is in his heart, his mind, his soul. What is it in your life that is your greatest desire, the thing you long for. Now, I know we're in church, so we're all supposed to be real spiritual about that, right? But this is a great opportunity. This one sentence here, this one statement here is a tremendous opportunity for us to, to really let the light of God's word shine into our dark hearts and reveal to us Hey, yeah, time for a checkup. What really is your big desire? What is that thing that, that you are just begging God for? There is nothing wrong with asking God for temporal needs and blessings. Jesus instructs us in, in the great prayer, the Lord's Prayer, how to, to do that. Many of it, we walked through that before. I'm sure you've heard it preached before. There is nothing wrong with saying, God, I need my daily bread. <laughs> I, I need physical sustenance. I, I need the material things to, to go forward in life. That's not the question. The question is, what is that thing, that, that one thing that really, really is a burden on your heart? prayer of your soul. For Paul, it was that his kinsmen 
his brothers, his, his, his nation of Israel, that they may be saved. As Paul continues to direct his comments to the church at Rome, he poses to them these obvious questions of what and why. What is to be the response and understanding to the truth of the gospel that Gentiles who had no understanding or desire to pursue the law as God had given it to Israel have all of a sudden been declared righteous. That's what he's talking about. We're going to walk from verses nine, chapter 9 verse 30 right on down to verse 1. How does this happen? They didn't care about the law. They weren't paying attention to it. And yet, they've been declared righteous. Juxtaposed in, in the, the passage, the people of Israel, who had been following the law of Moses for centuries upon centuries, had come up short. And this reality was the cause for some great tension that was arising in the New Testament church. Paul then answers the question, why is this the reality? And he answers it succinctly, stating, and don't miss this, that righteousness is by faith. Righteousness inextricably attached to faith, not works. The law was meant to reveal to the people their shortcomings. To call them to put their faith in the promise of the coming Messiah. And then to accept Jesus as that Messiah. I would encourage you maybe this week, if, if you're thinking about this, this whole process and what Paul is saying, he really elaborates on it in his, his letter. Actually, it was preceded, this letter to the Romans. But in Galatians, what we have is Galatians chapter 3. He really unpacks this truth. But Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah as a way to remind them that the truth had been given to them and they had missed it. They missed it. We see before us the testimony of faith above works and the tragedy of works apart from faith. The writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 11 verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or proof of things not seen. Following the simple definition, the writer then walks through a host of examples. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and others. All of these who obeyed and believed by faith. By faith, what God had said. Abraham left Ur, and walked by faith and not by sight. He offered Isaac on the altar by faith. Dr. J. Oswald Sanders stated, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. What's the result of faith? What's the reward for this kind of faith? In a word, righteousness. Righteousness. 
isn't that what every man and woman is pursuing? Whatever religion you want to to talk about on the face of the globe and, and through all of the centuries, it's all about finding approval with that God for whom they are worshiping. And yet God, who is God alone, said there is nothing about anything you can do. But it is by faith alone. In Christ alone. That's the fruit of faith. In a word, righteousness. The people have been given the law. And so they had a responsibility. That is the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel. The law was one of the seven blessings that Paul had already listed back in chapter 9. And tragically, they had missed the point. And, and by putting their focus on keeping the law, they had become self Righteous. Self-righteous. Dr. MacArthur observes, quote, the greatest obstacle to salvation is self-righteousness. People say, well, I'm just doing the best I can. I'm better than... <laughs> I'm not as bad as all of that might be true, but it's self-righteous. I'm doing what I can to get favor with God. And God says, you missed it. That's not how it works. In quoting from Isaiah... Isaiah 28, 16. That's what you have there in the text before you when he says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That, that, that is right out of the prophet Isaiah. We looked last week. I mean, he has quoted one Old Testament prophet beginning with Moses and then like right on through, one after another after another. To the Hebrew ear, this got their attention. You know, when you're, you're listening to me, and I've quoted guys like Oswald Sanders and John MacArthur, and I'll quote some others this morning. Sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll throw that out there and say, so, and it gets your attention. It's like, oh, well, if he said it. Okay, I get that. Paul's doing the same thing. I mean, today we like, and Paul said, and we're like, whoa. Back then it was like, what, Paul, who? So he says, Isaiah said, and Malachi said, and Jeremiah said, and Daniel said, and Moses said. And they're like, oh. So he quotes. And of course it's even more than that because it is the scriptures. But in doing it, Paul highlights that Jesus was in fact the stumbling stone. What he did, what he said, didn't make sense. Paul writes this as well to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. The human mind, the, it just doesn't make sense. These don't work. The Jews relied upon their birthright instead of the blessing of Messiah. Isn't that what John writes in, in the very opening sentences of the Gospel of John? He came unto his own and his own received him not. Talking of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Paul writes to Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He, talking of Jesus, saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now lest we miss the point for us today, could it not be said that there are plenty of, and I'm going to use a modifier, professing Christians today that are really putting their confidence in their separatist, righteous works more than saving faith. You see, it's so easy for us to look into the past and, and you know, throw the rocks at, at those people. But God has given to us his word, again, as a light, as a mirror to look into our hearts, to your heart today. Where are you today? Are you trusting in your self-righteousness or have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Liza Edmonds Hewitt, her pen name was Liddy Edmonds. She was a school teacher and a hymn writer who lived in Philadelphia in the late 19th century. One of the poems she wrote that was set to music, she wrote several that were ultimately set to music, but one of them is, My faith has found a resting place. The first two stanzas are these. My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul I come to him. He'll never cast me out. That's what Paul is imploring his readers to do. And so it begs the question, in what are you trusting today? As we conclude the service in a few minutes, we're going to partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. The bread represents the body of Jesus and the juice, his blood. We do not do this as a way to obtain righteousness. There is no grace imparted by putting a cracker in your mouth and taking a sip of juice. Jesus answered that question when he instituted it. Because he said, this do in remembrance of him. It is a memorial. And so because of faith, because of what Jesus did on the cross, this physical act reminds us of that brings us back very poignantly to those moments, to that event, to that incredible gift of love and self-sacrifice. Paul carries a tremendous burden for his people, his kinsmen, the Jews. He 
He talks of that in the previous verses and chapter. Rehearsing these facts and confronting the reader with these truths brings to the surface the exclamation that we see here in chapter 10, verse 1. It's, it's building. You can sense it when you just read all the way through. I mean, the, the exclamations of chapter 8 and then the tension in chapter 9, and it just kind of builds to this exclamation. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Because they're missing it, they're lost, they're trusting in their works, and it's going to come up short. Paul's own testimony is echoing in his heart and in his mind. He, 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 he's not being condescending and accusatory. He, he's speaking from his own testimony. He, he's like, I get it. That was me for so many years. Paul has declared the amazing truth of God's sovereignty and he's now bringing to light the responsibility that we have in response to that truth. And he returns to the statement that he had made several paragraphs earlier about his burden and his great sorrow back in chapter 9 verses 1, 2, and 3. It was so extreme that he had stated that if it were possible, he would be willing to revoke his own salvation so that his kinsmen the Jews would trust Christ. I mean, think about it. But by using the salutation here at the beginning of this sentence in chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, he gets the attention of now his fellow believers in Christ, his fellow Christians. You know, one of the great blessings of the doctrine of the church is that we're a family. That analogy is used often through the New Testament, and Paul employs it here. He drops it right into this conversation. Because another one of the blessings is he's, he's basically inviting, imploring brothers to join me in this prayer. Share this burden with me. Pray this with me. And there's also a ramification to this demonstration of transparency by Paul as he, as he calls these fellow believers, us, to, to then also examine our own hearts. Not just, okay, great, Paul, you've got a burden, but it, but it also flips around and says, what about you? What is your great burden for the people that you know that have not yet trusted Jesus? said this wasn't just something Paul talked about it was evidenced by his practice in ministry when Paul arrived in a city you know he just he traveled extensively we know of three uh, specific what we call missionary journeys based out of Antioch modern-day Turkey and he would la uh, launch out of there and, and and go north and then west and loop back around and then a little further and then ultimately obviously in taking the gospel even into Europe but whenever he arrived in a city, he went to the synagogue first. This is very plainly recorded in Acts, chapters 9, 13, 14, 16. It was proof that the great desire of his heart was for Israelites to turn to Jesus and trust in him instead of the law. The word that Paul uses most often translated 
good pleasure. That word desire, my, my heart's desire, it's most often translated in Scripture, good pleasure. Whether referring to the heart of God or, or to man, the implication being that for Paul, the thing that would bring him the greatest happiness, the most satisfaction, the truest joy would be for Jews to be saved by accepting that, yes, in fact, Jesus was the Messiah. What would bring you the most joy? What makes you the happiest? Renee and I became grandparents five years ago, and immediately we figured out and realized what all the fuss was about. Lord willing, we'll see Lily and Georgia this Friday, and Robert and Katie, but, you know. There isn't much that makes us happier than being with them. Katie took them, took the girls to a little pumpkin festival or fall festival thing yesterday and, you know, sent us some pictures and some of you probably saw them on social media. But, you know, I mean, what makes you happier than that? There's nothing wrong with gleaning joy and happiness from any of the good things given to us by a wonderful, merciful, gracious God. But as believers, as ambassadors for Christ, as we were reminded in the scripture reading earlier, as those entrusted with the spread of the gospel of Jesus, do we really desire to see people saved? Included with Paul's statement of desire is also a, a very humble statement of dependence upon God to see the desire fulfilled. If he could make them believe, he would. If he could do it for them, he would. If he could trade his salvation for theirs, he would do it. But that's not possible. And so he prays. He prays earnestly and faithfully and continually. Prayers of Paul for the early churches are recorded throughout the New Testament. Prayer is our admission that we need God's help. It's our confession that we're unable to accomplish the task on our own. Despite his education, his knowledge, his eloquence, his intelligence, he couldn't convince the Jews to accept Jesus as Savior without the help of God. And my friends, neither can you. I dare say if we had the time, we could go from person to person and there would be at least one person, whether by name or description, that you would say, I am burdened for them to be saved. But you can't talk them into it. You can't convince them. That is a Holy Spirit work. We present the truth. We present the gospel. We can do it in a very convincing fashion. But if all they have done is accepted our argument, they're going to come up short. They have to believe by faith in their heart and accept it for themselves. God in his sovereignty, God in his providence have said, you're my ambassadors. You go tell them what I've told you to tell them. Don't change it. Don't massage it. Don't twist it. Just tell them the good news. As Paul said, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's where the power lies. There are many, many wonderful quotes about prayer, but, but I just want to share quickly three that are my favorites, have been for many years. From One from John Wesley, 18th century, one from D.L. Moody, 19th century, and then one from Oswald Chambers, early 20th century. Wesley said, quote, I'm persuaded that God does everything by prayer and nothing without it. D.L. Moody, who God used in an amazing way to, to literally shake two continents with the gospel in the, uh, in the 19th century, he said this, quote, every work of God can be traced to some kneeling form. quote that I came across some years ago by Oswald Chambers, again, early 20th century, he made this ob observation, quote, prayer does not prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. You see, Paul understood this centuries before any of these men put it in such relatable phrases when he says, my heart's desire and prayer because he understood that was key prayer unless we get too pious and become disobedient Paul's going to remind us that we also have a responsibility to preach the good news that's coming up in verse 15 and we'll get there in a few weeks so it's not just that we have a desire and pray about it there's also to be a doing the truth remains though that the preaching of the gospel must be bathed in prayers for the reception of the gospel. So what is your great desire? Do you pray for the lost? And lastly, as we look at this, finish this sentence up, do you understand what Paul really means when he is praying that they may be saved. That they may be saved. The expression to be saved has become all too familiar in our Christian circles. It's a wonderful expression. It is really, quite frankly, a very picturesque expression. It's one that, that ought to conjure up all kinds of beautiful uh, thoughts and, 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 and pictures in our mind. But we would do well to remember what is really being stated here by Paul in this context with that word. Soter, to be saved. To be rescued. To be saved from what? To be spared from what? To be rescued from what? The lifeguard jumps into the water to save a person from drowning. The firefighter runs into a burning building to save a person from being burned alive. The problem that Paul was facing was that by and large the people of Israel didn't think they needed to be saved because they were trusting in their own works. They didn't even know they were drowning. They didn't even know the house was on fire. They're just keeping the law. Luke recorded the parable told by Jesus of the two men who went to, the, to pray at the temple in Luke chapter 18. And the Pharisee was very quick 
to point out all the ways that he was supposedly righteous. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess, he says. But Jesus points out that it was the humble, repentant tax collector that went away justified. Psychologists tell us that the two greatest fears people have are drowning and burning. As horrible as either of those are, an eternity in hell is worse. All four gospel writers record the preaching of Jesus regarding hell. It's a place of eternal weeping, of fire, of darkness, of torment. It is from this that people can be saved. It is what Paul is saying when he says, and I'm praying that they may be saved. It is from this that people must be saved. Salvation is not through the keeping of the law. No salvation is through Christ alone. A few years ago, I had the privilege of participating in a unique tour of the campus down at Yale. Yale is, I think, the third oldest educa- uh, institution of higher education in the country, the colonies. It was founded in 1701, actually in Saybrook. It did not move to New Haven until 1716. It's very interesting. If you look even on their own website, they kind of have a timeline. So 1701 founded in Saybrook. 1716 they moved to New Haven. 1757, this is on Yale.edu, by the way. The first church within a college in America is founded at Yale. And during Yale's first two centuries, Yale graduates influenced the spread of Christianity by serving as missionaries throughout the world. That's on their website right now. The tour that I took was led by an evangelical chaplain who had studied extensively the spiritual revivals that had occurred within the student body through the years, and there were some pretty significant ones. The last significant one was right at now 100 years ago. 100 years ago. It followed the death of one of of its graduates, a young man by the name of Will Borden. Some of you know that name and that story. The conclusion of the tour had us gathered around a bronze memorial to Borden in the lobby of Dwight Hall. It's still there today. Tragically, a lot of students go in and out of Dwight Hall every day. They have no earthly idea who that guy is and what that memorial is about. The biography, Borden of Yale, by Geraldine Taylor should be read, quite frankly, by every Christian. If you've never read it, get it off Amazon. It will, it will stir you. The following summary record of his short life is truly amazing. And I bring this to light because this, this takes what we have from first century, brings it into 20th century, brings it into relevance today. This isn't just preacher talk. This isn't just what the apostles did. This is what we are called to do as well. In 1904, William Borden graduated from high school as heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. He was already a millionaire. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave the 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. 
And as the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One friend expressed surprise that he was, quote, throwing himself away as a missionary, end quote. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905, trying to look like just one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't his money. One of them wrote, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ. He had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, he made one entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. And that entry said simply, quote, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time, end quote. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it happened. It was well on, the, on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us and soon after a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading of scripture. Bill's handling of scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group gave birth to a movement that spread across campus. By the end of the first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 undergrad students were meeting in such groups. Borden made his habit to seek out the most incorrigible students and try to bring them to salvation. One record states, in his sophomore year, we organized Bible study groups and divided up the class of 300 or more, each man interested taking a certain number, so that all might, if possible, be reached. A burden, a heart's desire. The names were gone over one by one, and the question asked, who will take this person? When it came to someone thought to be a really hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put him down to me. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and cripples. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven. To rehabilitate them, he founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of his friends wrote that, wrote that he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night on the street, in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Ganzu people in China. Once that goal was in sight, Borden never wavered. He also inspired his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known, and he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always felt he was one of the stuff, he was of the stuff martyrs are made of and heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, 
Bill seemed to realize always that, there must, that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as president of the Honor Society Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down several high-paying job offers, and he went on to graduate work at Princeton. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. Will Borden died on April 9, 1913, in Egypt. When the news of Will William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the United States, the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice wrote Mrs. Taylor in her introduction to his biography. It has been said for decades that Borden had written in his Bible three phrases, no reserves, no regrets, or no retreats, no regrets. It's not actually been substantiated, but they certainly do sum up his life. Ultimately, it's not Borden's words, but rather his life that have had the greatest impact. His life of unreserved service to God and the way it was tragically cut short inspired countless missionaries to carry the gospel across the globe during the 20th century. William Borden's testimony continues to inspire. Are you willing to be made willing? Borden once asked a student reluctantly considering missions. You see, Borden's heart desire and prayer was to see people come to Jesus to be saved. So how great is your heart's desire? How earnest is your prayer? Mine. Jesus instituted the practice of what we now call the Lord's Supper so that disciples would never forget what he did for them. What price he paid so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation could be saved. Paul's great desire was to see people saved. Countless believers through the years have given their lives in that service. How about you? How about me? How about What is the desire of your heart, the prayer of your soul? As the music plays in just a moment, I want to invite you to bow your head, your heart. And as we prepare to receive these elements, to pray quietly. Pray quietly in your heart. That God would give you this burden, that God would answer that prayer, that he would use you to see people saved.
As the music finishes, I'll come and close our time in prayer and we'll observe the Lord's Supper.